A lot of those questions that I talk about co-founders having with each other, I think prospective co-founders should probably have with each other even earlier before you even decide. It's like, okay, if someone came up and offered us $100 million, how does that feel? And I would much rather filter out the folks where you're not aligned. There are no right answers to some of those questions. But if you're early in your career, this is your first startup, you know, liquidity matters a lot. It's highly underrated. So my advice would be have those early conversations with people. And if you don't feel comfortable having those conversations, that's about as big of a red flag as there can be. It's like you just don't have the level of trust. Welcome to In Depth, a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on the review, we've shared standout company building advice. The kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In Depth, I am thrilled to be joined by Darmesh Shah. Darmesh is the co-founder and CTO of HubSpot, which he runs with his co-founder of 15 years, Brian Holligan. In today's conversation, we deeply explore some of the marquee moments along that 15-year journey in building HubSpot. To start, Darmesh unpacks the very specific way he and Brian approached evaluating their compatibility as co-founders. He's got tons of advice for other potential founding pairs to increase the likelihood of success. Next, he points to some of the foundational building blocks that keep him jazzed about his role at HubSpot still to this day, including the way he elicits feedback through bug reports. He also explains the reasoning behind his decision to never take on any direct reports and remain an individual contributor as a co-founder. Finally, Darmesh tells the story about how he came to own culture at HubSpot, even as the self-described least social person at the company. He walks us through how he approached culture as an engineering exercise, which continues today in his assessment of the culture as a product. Darmesh has an incredible well of knowledge to dip into, and it's a fascinating look behind the scenes at one of the most successful SaaS companies around. Whether you're currently a founder or looking to start a company someday, there are can't-miss lessons on everything from co-founder harmony, maintaining your own sanity running a company, and scaling up the cultural magic as the team grows. I hope you enjoy this episode, and now my conversation with Darmesh. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to dive in here. Thanks for having me. An interesting place to start our conversation is to talk about your co-founder relationship with Brian. What I've noticed that at Afar, it, it seems like an outrageously productive relationship over an exceptionally long period of time. Even when you have quite productive founder relationships, you often don't see them go on for 15 years. And so I thought it might be interesting to have you talk a little bit about when you look back on what made it work and what made it so productive. What's sort of the root cause? What made it work? 
You're right. It has been a long, enduring, productive relationship. And I think we'll start with obvious things, which people don't talk about, but apply. One is when you're picking a co-founder or trying to choose who you're going to partner up with on this long startup journey, you need to actually like the person and you need to have some degree of mutual admiration and respect. And I think that gets missed sometimes when founders are trying to kind of assess each other. They'll assess the idea. They'll like maybe have a beer together. And that's all well and good, but you have to really ask yourself, do I enjoy spending time with this person? Because you will be spending a lot of time with this person. In many cases, more with that individual or a group of individuals than anyone in your life, including your significant other. And so <laughs> do you enjoy spending time? That's a fundamental thing. And the other thing that's, I think, interesting in terms of figuring that out, I don't think people allow themselves enough time to get to know their potential co-founders. Brian's my co-founder, Ryan Allegan. He and I were very, I'll say, methodical about making these determinations. We met in grad school, which I think a lot of co-founding relationships start there. But the reason that academic environment is useful when used correctly is it gives you a relatively lightweight, non-intrusive way to kind of really get to know a person, at least in a, even though it is a somewhat hypothetical setting. But, but what we did is that we said, okay, well, we might start a company together someday. We knew I still had another year left uh, before I graduated. But we said, okay, well, every class that we're having together, which was a lot of them, any class that has a project, we're going to intentionally put ourselves on the same team. And sometimes it was just a team of the two of us. And we took it a step further. We said, well, every project that's required of us, we're going to make that project tied back to this startup that we called HubSpot. Now, HubSpot wasn't a company at the time. It was a idea for a company. And that idea shifted. But the idea here is to try and I'll use the word simulate for lack of a better term. It's like, what would it be like being around this person for four, six, eight hours at a time? What would it be like having a project that you're working on together that's going to be measured and that you have to deliver that actually does matter? What would it be like? And how do they change as circumstances change? And it's in a very compressed one or two year environment that you get this opportunity, but we maximize that opportunity. And, and that's, I think that's what contributed to it. We sort of knew each other really well. And in our personal relationships, we often will date for a long time before we make a very long, ideally lifelong commitment. In co-founder land, I don't think people are as deliberate about spending time with their potential co-founders and, and getting to know them. That would be it. It's like, make sure you like them, make sure you have mutual admiration and respect. And then on a tactical level, make sure you have different skills or divergent skills, but common values. And this is going to sound a little bit cliched because it is, but different skill sets is important. And that's an easy one that says, okay, well, you both, both shouldn't have the same set of skills, the same background. You can't be clones of the same people. It's often tempting to do that with co-founders because those are the kinds of people you gravitate to and you know and you hang out with. In our case, Ryan grew up in, in sales and marketing. I grew up in product and engineering. And so we had very different backgrounds and, and different skill sets. But then we also had a common set of values, which is super useful as you're scaling. One of them being around transparency. Uh, one of them being around this obsession with the customer and solving actual problems. All those things kind of help. You have to know your founder, like them, and hopefully be different enough that you can bring different things to the table. On that point about common values, did you explicitly surface them in that year or two before you started the company and they kind of expressed themselves organically? It's a good question. So a couple of them, like this notion around transparency was there from time T equals zero. And it was not because we sat down and said, oh, here's our list of values. Transparency is one of them. It was more a matter of convenience, which is, hey, we sat down and we had to make a decision when we started the company. It's like, okay, well, we have this information. We just hired our first employee. 
and we have to decide what we're going to share with this person. Now, we could have gone one of two ways. I'm an engineer, so I kind of look at the boundary conditions. One could have been that we're not going to share any information with anybody. It's just the two of us, and that's just how we'll run the company. And it can be argued whether it's actually possible to run a company that way. But we'll call it the minimum amount of information to all possible people. The other end of the extreme was to share all possible information with all possible people. And the way we looked at it, the latter was a much more efficient way to go about it, which was we didn't have to make the choice. We didn't think the first one was going to work in terms of being closed. We wouldn't be able to delegate. We wouldn't be able to scale. And so we kind of tested. It's like, okay, well, how would life look if we said we're going to make everything available to all people unless it's illegal um, or it's not our information to share. And so that core value just came out of just a practical, how do we want to run the company? What does this feel like? And then that translated over time into a kind of an articulated, here are a set of values and transparency has been one of them since time t equals zero for HubSpot. Do you think that you two could have been a successful co-founder pairing working on most types of companies? Or was this specific company in HubSpot a unique expression of the way in which you two could be successful? In theory, Brian and I both believe that we could have been parachuted into any kind of similar tech company, that's both of our background, and would have had a reasonable shot at success, assuming the idea itself and the other kind of external factors were common. So the answer is yes, I believe it, that we could have been in a different company, it didn't have to be this one. On a practical matter, I have kind of a semi-evidence of this, which is when we started HubSpot, my motivation, so just taking a step back, you know, I had done a couple of startups before, sold them, and I said, I'm going back to grad school and find myself and figure out what's next. I had promised my wife I would not do any more startups. That was the agreement. She and I have been together since before I did my first startup. I lived the, the proverbial canonical startup life with all the startup hours and all the sacrifices people talk about. And so I said, I'm not going to do a startup. And here I am in grad school. And then just a few months in, Brian and I had met and we had this set of common passions around startups and tech, small business. And so we first made the decision, and this is why this kind of deliberate kind of feeling each other out and getting to know each other through an academic setting in these various projects, but we didn't really know what the idea for the company was going to be. In a way, you can think of it like Brian and I first came together as co-founders and then jointly came up with, okay, well, we've decided that we really like each other enough and that this is kind of worth pursuing. We have a broad sense of what we wanted to do, but the idea that's now HubSpot didn't really manifest until after we made the decision that the two of us were going to start a company together. I'm interested when you think about your kind of compatibility and your worldviews, how did you approach, if you did this, and maybe it was completely unintentional, the path of growing together over a long period of time? I think in some ways, as you were sort of mentioning, it's it's similar to a lot of relationships and, and potentially marriages. And, and we all hear about marriages where people are, are super aligned when they get married, but in 10 years, they're different people. And I think you had a company that went from zero to one to 10 to one of the most meaningful SaaS companies of the last 20 years. And so just an insane amount of change, an insane amount of scale. And yet it seems like you were able to productively grow together. And I'm curious, sort of any reflections on that? Yeah, I think a few things contributed. One of the things that brought us together in the first place is that it's not overly surprising since we were both in grad school when we met, but we have this real passion for learning. We're learning machines. And the nice thing about as the company scaled is that, and this was our first time doing anything approaching the scale of what HubSpot became. And so every month, every quarter, every year, there were new things to learn, things that neither one of us knew, or in some cases, maybe there was an area that Brian had more experience in or I had more experience in. The other one 
came along. We both learned from each other and then both learned together about things that neither one of us knew much about. And so that's been helpful. I think that having a shared purpose, and it's not such a, like a, the high fluten kind of mission, which we did have, but we had this shared goal of trying to get better. To this day, we will send each other emails at 1 or 2 a.m. We'll send each other book recommendations. We know what's on each other's reading lists. We'll discuss talks we've watched or things we've learned. And then this carried, it wasn't just the co-founding team, all the early employees. We had this very academic-oriented culture. So we really believed in debate. We really believed in the easy issues were easy to knock out. It's the ones that were well, we couldn't decide on, where debate was actually very healthy and it was very respectful, but it was a very academic debate. And we could pick anyone off the management team at the time and say, okay, well, we've got this issue, argue whichever side. Like They may not necessarily agree with that particular side, but just like debate school, you learn to do that. And so that process of just learning together, of pushing on each other, even when we disagreed, which did happen, but not all that often, I think that helped keep the relationship productive, keep it fun, because we both enjoyed learning. And then growth itself is kind of fun. It was If the company had gone really, really poorly, I think we would still have survived it. Probably wouldn't have been quite as much fun, but that's it. It's just learning together is a useful activity. Can you share a story that brings that to life over the past handful of years? Yeah, so it's the longest running debate in HubSpot history and was in the early years, and it was deciding on our target market. And we had it reduced down to two things. One, there was a third one that we all agreed wasn't going to be the target market, which was these kind of developer IT folks at the time. We said, okay, we're, we're going to focus either on professional marketers because we had a marketing suite of applications. That was our first set of products out of the gate. So we could focus on professional marketers or we could focus on business owners and entrepreneurs. Those were the two, two target markets. And we had names for those personas. So we called the marketing persona, we called her Marketing Mary, and we called the, uh, the business owner, Owner Ollie. So maybe he owned a small accounting firm or something like that as an example. And there were trade-offs on both sides. There were many more Owner Ollies out there than there were Marketing Marys, because there's lots of startups and small businesses. But Marketing Mary understood the product better. She had a more earning need because it's like, oh, I'm trying to do marketing. The old stuff's not working. Let me look at HubSpot. And so that one was one we could and did literally debate for years before we made a decision. And then this was that long running debate was turned into uh, one of the most popular Harvard Business School cases, which is taught to every HBS grad that graduates now as part of the core curriculum uh, in the marketing class there. But the way we ultimately resolved it, step one was we had to decide to decide because previously we had kind of walked into rooms like, okay, we're not going to leave this room until we have a decision. And we like spend seven hours talking about it, order food in, and we kind of leave. And, and that night we'd be pinging back each other. It's like, I know we made the, this particular call, but what about this? And what about that? But we finally did make the decision, okay, like sitting on the fence is not a great way to do this. And we made a decision and moved on. But that's, yeah, that's one example. We had those kind of long running debates. We're much better about it now in terms of getting to a decision faster. And we're much, much better about not kind of second guessing ourselves. And once the we use the phrase sailing the ship, once we've sailed a ship on a decision, we don't call it back to harbor. So you're touching on a few maybe rituals or practices that you and Brian sort of shared over the years. I'm curious, maybe you could expand a little on that in terms of the things that you did on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis that provided fantastic dividends for the two of you. We are both night people, night owls, so that helped. I'm not sure the relationship would have worked as well. Probably we would have still made it work. That was one thing. So we'd have these kind of late night conversations and they were, when I say conversations, we almost never talked on the phone because neither one of us are phone people. And that's one of my quirks is I actually do almost zero like one-to-one -one calls. I never answer my phone. I have maybe 
three, four calls a year. So it's a little bit weird. But anyway, so all of our conversations were asynchronous. And this is in the kind of pre-Slack days. So it was all over email. And so we would have these, we were never apologetic about long emails. It's because that's sort of how we thought about things. So someone might kick off a particular, like, oh, what do we think about this particular market direction or this new competitor that's come along? You know, And it could be at the 50,000 foot level, uh, talking about kind of long-term strategy. And it could be down in the weeds about a particular feature within a particular product. But what was very productive is the fact that a, it was an asynchronous, so tactically that just works better rather than trying to schedule time, although it's a lower bandwidth conversation, takes longer. But the upside to it, and we go back through the annals of HubSpot history all the time, like we'll go back to old emails, especially as new folks join, because there were things that we uncovered in earlier conversations that Brian and I have had. And the nice thing about that particular tactic of using email as a recurrent collaboration mechanism is that we can then take snippets or even entire email threads and pull a new person in. It's like, okay, well, Brian and I have been back and forth on this thing around some sort of product strategy thing. Let's bring in X or Y from the team. A, catch them up or B, get their take. And it's a nice, smooth way to make that process happen. So that's worked out really well for us in terms of having that open collaboration, putting our brains on speakerphone in a way by virtue of writing down our thoughts in email. So that's one thing that jumps to mind. But then just books. We read a lot. We both have always enjoyed reading prior to HubSpot. And so this came a little bit because we were such recent grad students. By the way, so we were both uh, at MIT Sloan. And this is both a good thing and a bad thing is that the next six hires that we had, or six out of seven hires in the early team were all MBA students all went to MIT Sloan within like a three-year, four-year time horizon. We weren't all there together. And there are lots of downsides to that in terms of that was much too homogeneous a team. If I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do it that way. But one upside to that model is that we had a higher order vocabulary, having taken the same classes with the same professors, learned the same business cases, read the same books as part of the curriculum. So we could talk about something in like a sentence that would carry this richness and all this context with it simply because we had just done that case. It's like, oh, this is like the Capital One case where we've got an arbit arbitrage opportunity so we can provide, they provide like the most efficient interest rates to make things fair for consumers. We could do that over here. And just by saying it's the Capital One case carried all that richness of context with it. And that was useful. And so we took that idea of like, oh, it was very useful to have taken the same classes and read the same business cases and things into books. It's like, okay, if we read the same books, we can kind of point back and reference either entire books or sections of books or quotes from books and say, okay, well, this sort of applies to us. What do we think? And we've carried that not just between the two of us now, the management team at HubSpot does that on a very regular basis. We don't do required reading, but we do highly recommended readings. If you really want to be part of the richer conversation, it's going to be helpful for you to have read XYZ book. One of the other things that I think you all have developed over the years is an approach to your own annual reviews. And I was interested maybe if you could talk a little bit about what does that practice look like and what are the pieces? Yeah, the hard thing about annual reviews for founders and people higher up in the organization is that you don't have a boss per se. I guess you could get your board if you have a board to write your review for you. That has its own set of challenges with it. So what we did uh, and have been doing between Brian and I is that we write each other's reviews and we spend a lot of time on it because one of the other values we share is we both really, really believe and crave feedback. We, and we like to iterate, so we like to kind of know how things are going. We love, love feedback. And so it's hard to get that feedback when you're CEO, you're a co-founder, just from an org structure perspective. So what we decided to do is that we would do each other's reviews on an annual basis. But it wouldn't just be, oh, here are my thoughts on Brian or Brian's thoughts on me. That person, whoever was doing the review, was then responsible for talking to 15, 20 people in the team um, of their choosing, who they thought might give most color and context to how things were going. And then 
it was the, the review writer's responsibility to kind of synthesize all the feedback heard, add their own things in there, and then write this 10, 15 page review that we shared with each other on an annual basis. And then, and then there would be a response to the review in written form that says, okay, well, I, I kind of heard what was said. Here are things tactically that I'm going to try and do over the course of the next year to try and kind of improve those things. And there'll be, this is a somewhat funny thing is that, so when I write Brian's review, since I'm a product engineering guy, I, I write it as a kind of a product report. It's like a bug report almost. It's like, oh, here are all the kind of bugs that people have reported back about, uh, you know, the, the way you lead or the way you manage or you know, the way you are. Uh, just like if it were a, a kind of a product feedback thing, some of those things Brian will come back with and rightfully so. He's like, well, that works as design. That's, I'm, I'm unlikely to change that. I do the same thing in the, in the reverse. It's not picking on him. And so we would version it. It's like, okay, here's Brian 4.0. These are things people love about Brian 4.0. This new feature that you added over the course of the last year or two years uh, has been received very well. But this thing we think is a bug. Multiple people have cited the same bug. I think it's holding you back and holding the company back. And one of the many things I love about Brian is he is exceptionally good at receiving receiving that feedback. So the short story is um, we spend the time. We understand how important it is. And there's some things that are just really hard to completely delegate to like a head of HR or someone else. And this is a practice that has worked well for us. And it also serves to kind of keep us closer. And because we've been friends and I've worked with each other for so long, we know where that feedback is coming from. We know it's coming from a good place. When you're collecting the feedback from other folks in the organization, what are you asking them? What have you found gets you the most crystallized insights or the most accurate bug reports from other folks in the organization? The same way I describe it to you is how I describe it to the people that I'm getting feedback from, especially folks that are newer to the organization, which is, you know, I'm writing a, and I'll joke about it, it's like, you know, I'm a product engineering person, so I'm writing a kind of product review of Brian. And, you know, what do you think is working? What are the features of Brian that you really enjoy that it's like you're glad they're there? What are the things that are annoyances that you, you know, you'd like to fix, but they're not really keeping you from doing your work and, and they're not critical? You know, we can rank the severity of them. But to try and leave it open-ended. What I'm trying to do is not say, okay, well, I want to collect feedback from this particular person around how Brian interacts with the engineering team, even if I'm interviewing an engineer, because I think that pigeonholes it a little bit too much. You shouldn't request certain types of feedback from certain roles, because a lot of times we think we know what the interaction between Brian and, let's say, person X would be because of the role in the organization. And turns out sometimes people have much more useful feedback that might be outside of their immediate role or their immediate set of interactions. Sometimes the feedback is not because of direct interactions they've had with Brian, but it might be around they've heard Brian speak at public events or they ran into him at a conference or whatever it might be. So I try to leave it as open-ended as I possibly can. It makes it a little bit harder to synthesize because it comes back in a relatively unstructured way. That's part of the fun of it. And then you kind of look for patterns that says, okay, well, this was unaided feedback. I didn't try to lead the witness in any way. What came back? Here are people, here are things that kind of jump to people's minds and they tend to kind of self-select in terms of things that are most impactful versus trying to answer your question. So I try not to be too specific. When you think back to all the bug reports that you've received over the past 15 years, are there specific bugs that have led to the most significant growth for you personally? Yes, and both ways. So I'll give you one of each. One is a reported bug, and, and the bug was we don't see enough of Darmesh when he's in the office. It's awesome because we feel like we collaborate, we feel like we're connected, and we really enjoy. And this is pre-pandemic. And I got that feedback for at least a couple of years, and it will keep popping its head up every now and then. And my response to it has been, that sort of works as designed. So I understand the value of that in-person meeting, but the cost of that particular, fixing that particular bug 
is exceptionally high for me emotionally and as a result of which is exceptionally high for HubSpot because that one or two hours of in-person time and a one-on-one meeting, I'll do it, uh, but it's going to kind of ruin the rest of my day, maybe the maybe my week because I am a... I have, I have a lot of quirks, but one of them is around, I'm a super introvert. And it's not that I don't like people. It's just that I don't like being around them a lot in person. So I'm great over long email exchanges. Uh, I can hop onto Slacks every now and then if I need to, but it just takes a lot of energy out of me. So that was one that was like, okay, I understand that this is what you want, but my apologies, I, I don't think I'm going to, I'm going to deliberately decide not to fix that particular one. One that I did fix, which is around like Dharmesh, you know, you're kind of out there we really don't know what you're working on or what you do or what you care about. And that was not because I was hiding anything. It's just because I wasn't sure anyone really cared. I didn't want to distract the team with whatever random thoughts were going through my head. And so now what I did to fix that particular bug and still kind of aligned with my original, like my alone time introvertedness, is I started a, a series of wiki posts that I write on the internal, basically an internal blog that's called Darmesh's Ponderings. And I'll talk about things that I can't actually talk about publicly because it's, and, but the nice good news here is inside the company, it doesn't leave the company. And that's been a great way for me to be transparent. And then people can opt in if they want to read that blog post on what I think about Web3 or what I think about whatever happens to be on my mind at the time or how I made a particular decision I made. They can get inside my head if they choose to. And that's been helpful. When you think about your own personal growth and evolution, when you get bug reports that you decide are worthy of you acting on, do you immediately go to some system level change or practice in the example that you just gave us around more internal comms to keep people abreast of what you're thinking about or what you're doing? Or are there other ways that you actually go about implementing feedback. And I'm always curious about this because I think in general, even if folks are good at receiving feedback, most people don't actually make a profound change. And they just, you know, if they're not detail-oriented, they keep going on not detail-oriented. And implementing feedback is maybe trickier than one would imagine. Yeah, we have some base-level features of what I call the HubSpot operating system, which is our culture and how things work at HubSpot. And one of them is around, we believe in autonomy, which is super important. So people have lots of discretion and control and lots of companies do that. But we think the flip side of um, autonomy is accountability, which is you have to kind of hold yourself and your peers and your leadership accountable for the things that they commit to doing and accountable to our values. So my motivation for doing that series of wiki posts around transparency is like, okay, well, transparency wasn't hard. It's like, okay, well, that's our culture. So I don't think anyone's gonna be bothered by the fact that I'm putting my thoughts out there. But in terms of the, like, the review responses, one of the things that Brian and I have done is when we decide we're gonna make some base level changes or like we're gonna respond to feedback from the review, we will share that with all the employees. We'll say, okay, well, here's what I heard back from my latest review from Brian. Here are the bugs that are, you might call them bugs, but I say they work as designed. I'm not going to address them. And here are the things I am going to fix. And often I'll try to put a timeline around it if I can, if it makes sense. But most, it's assumed that'll be in the following calendar year. That's what I think makes sure that the change that should be happening is happening, is that it's okay for someone not to make the change. And they can make their case for why they're not going to change a certain thing. But they actually have to reveal that they made that decision. You can't just ignore things. Ryan and I do this not just at the individual you know, review level. We do a net promoter score survey for all of our employees. We do that quarterly and have been doing it for over a decade now. And that's basically like a bug report for the company. Just like you would have a customer satisfaction survey or a net promoter score for your product, we do the same thing. And we think of culture as a product and people submit their feedback. And we, as a management team, will say, and we publish it. The responses themselves are anonymous, but the actual entirety of that survey result is published 
both in quantification form and the classified form, and say, here are the things we heard back, and here are things that absolutely uh, many of you felt this way. It's a big issue. It's a hard one to fix. And so here's the plan we're putting in place to make those changes. And then similar to how we do it on the one-on-one feedback, we'll say, these are things a handful of you mentioned. We understand where you're coming from, but we just don't think we're going to be able to make that particular change, at least not now. We're not saying not ever, uh, but we're not going to be able to get to it anytime soon. Let's talk about it again if it still continues to be an issue over time. We didn't touch on your own role as a co-founder in the business and how it changed over the last 15 years, or maybe in what ways hasn't it changed? It's a good tie back to some of the co-founder decisions as well and, and, and the relationship. So when Brian and I decided that we were going to start HubSpot, make it official, we made a couple of decisions. One was, we're not going to start the company. I, I was still in school. He graduated a year ahead of me. I still had a thesis to write. And since I had promised my wife I I wasn't going to do a startup. And then I kind of convinced her. I'm like, okay, I have one more step up to bat left. And I've met this great guy. And she had met Brian several times. But once we made the decision to start it, we said, okay, well, I'm not going to officially start it until literally the day of my graduation, which was June 9th of 2006. But then we had this, which I think all co-founding teams should have, is to sit down and have this very deep discussion and go over like the common questions. It's, it's amazing to me how many co-founders have not talked through some fundamental questions, uh, one of which is like, okay, like, what do we want out of this startup? What does success look like? What happens if a year from now someone comes over and offers us $100 million to acquire the company? What happens if three years from now one of us is just disengaged with the company and really doesn't want to do this anymore? What happens if we fundamentally disagree on something that's like a super pivotal thing? Like all these questions that are you know, super important and people are like, oh, well, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. You can certainly do that, but it's actually much, much better to get those issues out on the table as early in the process as you possibly can, because it just gets harder later. So back to your question around my role. So one of the things we talked about in that early set of founder meetings was, first of all, well, who's going to be CEO? And this was an easy one because Brian wanted to be CEO. He had never been CEO of a company before. Uh, And I did not want to be CEO because I had been a CEO before of my prior two startups, and I suck at it. That's just not my thing. And so we then took that a step further And I said, Brian, you know what? And then this kind of came to me in the meeting. I don't think I want any direct reports. It's like, I don't want to manage anyone. And my motivation for doing that was like, okay, well, I had run my prior startup for 10 plus years as founder CEO. And one thing I've learned about myself is I'm really bad at management in the classic textbook way. And the conversation I had had in my head was, I'm a reasonably smart person if I spent three, five, seven, 10 years, I could probably get okay at management with some coaching and some training and I could become passively okay at it. And I didn't want to spend five years and a bunch of calories getting passively okay at something. So Brian, I had this conversation. I'm like, Brian, I just don't manage people. I'll be an individual contributor and I'll be hundred percent in the business. I'm not trying to shirk any work or try to you know, have any side hobbies or anything like that. And so that's the decision we made. So it's interesting HubSpot's 15 plus years old now. We have 5,000 employees and exactly zero report to me. And if I had to trace back, one of the reasons you know, the relationship between Brian and I has worked is that early decision is that I kind of decided to focus on my strengths. I decided to not try and work on mitigating that particular weakness. And had I not made that particular choice, had HubSpot not made that call collectively, I don't know that I would have lasted that long. I'm a startup-y kind of guy. I think my life would have gotten increasingly more painful in ways that I don't like. And I probably wouldn't have lasted as a startup guy. So, And now, candidly, I'm having a better time at HubSpot now, even though we're 15 years and 5,000 employees, 
that I was having in the early years of HubSpot. Brian, I talked about that particular observation, which is, and we're both having a lot of fun in these kind of later years. It's because, well, those early startup years can be fun. And yes, you're super nimble and that's fine. But there's some value to having scale and being at the grownups table where we can say, oh, we've got this idea. We've got this thesis and have the resources, and not just like money, but having people and talent that we can put against a problem or put against an idea that we couldn't do as a 10 person scrappy startup. There's only so much you can do. But now we can actually put big bets down. That's awfully fun. Was there anything that you did that created a dynamic where you as the co-founder could be effectively an individual contributor throughout the life of the company? And I think that so many norms at companies ties influence with size of org chart that you are responsible for. And so I would think there might be a little bit of peculiar dynamics in the first few years, or maybe even at scale, given how it's quite non-traditional. I'd, I'd actually say in working across hundreds of companies, you tend to see the co-founder and CTO effectively take on the VP end role early on and struggle with it mightily. And it leads to some fracturing or, or implosion where that person ends up leaving the company. And so is there anything that worked for you that made it really effective to boldly take on this, I'm going to contribute in this specific way? It's going to sound paradoxical. Um, it starts with a degree of, I guess, uh, self-awareness. I accepted the fact that I'm not going to be a great manager. And then the next step was like, okay, what would life be like as an individual contributor? And sticking to it, it's like, okay, I made that choice. And I think part of the thing, and we have to keep this in mind, is that founders have a special designation within a company just by virtue of having been founders. Their opinion, regardless of whether they have managerial responsibility or not, is going to carry some weight, both while they have operating roles and even post-operating roles if they're just on the border and and that chair role or something like that, they're going to be influential. They're going to have. So I'm not sure we one would be able to pull that off as readily with any any other even senior exec. Let's say we had a, a brilliant senior person on the engineering staff and it's like, okay, I'm just going to move to a pure individual contributor role. And they can certainly do that, but then the impact may not be what they want in terms of the influence on decisions and things like that. So I think the founders have a somewhat special designation. But we have kind of embraced this idea of, especially within our engineering org, is that you don't have to go into management in order to progress in the company. We recognize that your progression and the value you get from the company should be a function of the value you're adding to the company. And then sometimes people are great managers, they should do that. Sometimes people are great at building teams, they should do that. But then some people are just really, really good at building great products and they should do that. We shouldn't force them into something simply because the conventional wisdom says your value is a function of how many people you have downstream in the org chart. We just don't think that makes sense. Before we close this first chapter of the conversation around co-founders and early people stuff, is there anything we didn't touch on as it relates to advice you would have for folks looking for co-founders, figuring out if someone should be their co-founder or having a productive relationship? You mentioned just briefly a few minutes ago the idea of these fundamental questions that you tend to think should be discussed before you start a company versus after. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about that or other things. I'm sure you get pinged all the time and you probably write long emails back when people are asking you about this to avoid a phone call. And so in those emails, is there anything maybe we didn't explore that might be useful to share? Yeah, a couple of things. One is We'll talk about the kind of negative cases. I think where things tend to go wrong is when you talk someone into doing a startup with you, and all co-founding relationships involve some element of sales. You're talking each other into doing something. But if it's too one-sided, which is, okay, you're super passionate about this idea. You happen to have come across this person that you think is a brilliant engineer, brilliant designer, whatever they happen to be, that love needs to be reciprocated. It's okay if they're not 
as gung-ho about doing a startup or about your particular idea or mission, but it has to be more than a zero or a one. Otherwise, you're just pulling them along and that won't last. You may talk them into it because you're a charming individual, but there needs to be this fundamental desire that they have and they need to see the upside uh, regardless of where the startup winds up going. And this is the thing I use in recruiting people at HubSpot, even, even at scale, which is like many companies, we, we love entrepreneurial folks. We love the creativity that comes with folks that are super entrepreneurial. Well, if you bring on those folks, it's like you're going to have to let them learn. That's the thing they're solving for and be okay with the fact that things might not work out. So the people that you want on board are the ones that even if the startup doesn't go well, which many don't for any number of reasons, that they won't have regretted it. They may regret certain decisions, but not the one to actually join you and start the company, that they will have learned enough and their personality is such that they will have extracted enough value and gotten enough from it that regardless of what the outcome is, they won't resent or regret having made that choice. And if you sold too hard to try and convince them, that often becomes counterproductive as you go through the trials and tribulations and the, the roller coaster ride that is startups. So that's one is, is just don't sell too hard. Make sure they want to do it too. Thing number two I would suggest is you need to find a way to date before getting married. And maybe you don't have the luxury of being in an academic environment for a couple of years together. But even if you simulate it somehow that says, oh, look, and I'm making things up here, but take an online class together or work on a project together, something smaller, it doesn't have to be this startup. Um, maybe even collaborate on something that helps you understand what makes them tick. And a lot of those questions that I talk about co-founders having with each other, I think prospective co-founders should probably have with each other even earlier before you even decide. It's like, okay, well, you know, what do you think about that? Like if someone came up and offered us $100 million, like how does that feel? And I would much rather filter out the folks where you're not aligned. There are no right answers to some of those questions. If you're early in your career and this is your first startup, liquidity matters a lot. It's highly underrated. So my advice would be have those early conversations with people. And if you don't feel comfortable having those conversations, that's about as big of a red flag as there can be. It's like you just don't have the level of trust. Just get to know them. It'll be better for everyone. When you reflect back on those fundamental question conversations you and Brian had, did the answers that each of you shared end up being the way that you behaved in the past 15 years when those questions came up? Or there is a little bit of a trick of like my current self and future self are, are related people, but maybe slightly different. A mix of both, but a couple of them were fundamentally deterministic of the trajectory of the company. So for instance, one of the questions we had early on is around what does success look like? What are we trying to accomplish here? And both Brian and I had some success in our professional careers. You know, I had startups before I had sold it. So I'd hit it like a single or a double. And the only reason I was doing HubSpot is because I hadn't quite ever hit a home run. I hadn't had anything big and impactful done. And I felt like I needed one more step up to bat. And Brian was in a similar position. So one of the early decisions we made was what we're trying to do here is build something sustainable, build something big and impactful that someday our kids and grandkids will be proud of, something we can point back to. And that was the aspiration. And uh, we also talked about doing it in Boston. But once we made that call early on, this was literally like week one of the company, out of that one decision, so many decisions became clear. Every time we hit a fork in the road that says, okay, we could go down this particular fork. And the question we ask ourselves is which path maximizes the probability that we have a chance at this kind of big, impactful, significant company. And so we never took the conservative path. So when we were out like raising capital, we didn't worry about dilution. We worried about it like, okay, does this improve our odds of being the big, impactful company that we want this to be? And that was super useful. So we didn't get distracted by acquisition offers. We didn't get distracted by trying to negotiate the best possible terms and worry about what dilution was going to be. You know, We wanted fair deals with all of our private venture rounds, but it made a lot of things easier. 
we weren't trying to maintain control. We were like, okay, well, let's build a great board. We knew we were not reluctant to raise funds. We were not reluctant to go public because that was all part of, does this help turn us into the big significant company we want to be? Does this help us kind of achieve our ambitions and our aspirations? So not every question that we asked each other in that first week had that big of an impact, but uh, many of them did. That was one of them. Do you think there's a difference between your personal values and Brian's personal values and the company's core values? Or is the company's core values just an expression of the way that the two of you behave? It's a good question. So Brian and I are probably 95 plus percent overlapped on just core values. Many have uh, joked that Brian and I kind of think with one mind almost. And it works in both ways. He can predict how I would respond to any particular question in any particular situation. And we've had our disagreements on a tactical level, but our values are very, very similar. And I would say if Brian and I are 95% overlapped, the culture is probably maybe 85 or 90% overlapped with the two of us because a lot of the core of the culture manifests as a result of just how Brian and I think of things. But cultures do drift a little bit as you add more people. It becomes harder and harder to keep it centered on one particular thing. And I don't know that that one particular thing is necessarily the right thing. And so I think, you know, I can talk about this a little bit, but I think of culture as a product and product is not static. It's not like, oh, we had this culture in the early years of HubSpot, didn't that work great? And now our job is to preserve that culture. I don't think that's the right approach. You don't want to preserve your culture. You want to iterate on your culture, keep the fundamentals, the thing that makes the product, the product or the culture, the culture, the same, but like it's not a static thing. You have to iterate because the needs of the market change, the needs of the customers. So we think of culture as a product. And by the way, when I say we think of culture as a product, we literally think of culture as a product and all the things that would manifest from that one single fundamental belief to sometimes the point of ludicrousness, but we treat it that way. So we think of the employees as customers of said product. And that's why we do the surveys as if we were doing a product survey. That's why we follow up with, oh, here's what our roadmap looks like for the culture. Here are the things we're fixing or not fixing. Um, that all traces back to this notion that culture is a product that you build for your people so they can make good decisions and help grow the company. One of the things that I was reflecting on in our conversation thus far is that it's quite interesting that you tend to be more introverted, prefer to not manage people. And yet you seem to have this intense curiosity and excitement around culture and people. And I'm curious where that comes from, given it feels a little bit antithetical to some of the ways you describe yourself. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a good story. So I'm informally responsible for culture at HubSpot, or I'll say unofficially. It's actually somewhat formal. But Here's how this turned out. So my co-founder was part of a CEO group that got together quarterly and talked about CEO issues. And I always pictured when they had these meetings that they'd be like out in the field somewhere sitting in a circle and singing CEO songs. And the topic at one of these meetings that Brian went to was culture. And this is early years, maybe year four or five of HubSpot. And at this meeting, culture was a topic. They would go around and everyone would talk about lessons learned on culture, what they're doing about culture, so on and so forth. And he had some highfalutin CEOs as part of his group. And I wasn't part of this group. I hadn't been part of this meeting, but we had one of our um, regular founders dinners and, and Brian kind of caught me up. It's like, yep, I had my CEO group meeting uh, a couple of days ago and the topic was culture. And I told them, it's like, well, we're still in the very early stages. We're building product and selling product and trying to figure out how to scale. And culture is a thing that we will definitely address, but that's going to have to come later because it's just not, it's not a burning issue right now. And the rest of his CEO group came down a little bit hard on it. It's like, Brian, you don't get it. Culture is the number one thing. If you don't get that right, or if you mess that up, nothing else will matter. That's the thing that's going to determine your long-term destiny. And so he's sharing this feedback with me. It's like, so culture is important. I'm like, okay, Brian, that's awfully good insight. Those are smart folks. Uh, great. 
And then his following sentence was, and so why don't you go do that? And I'm paraphrasing. And I'm like, do what? The culture thing. Like, go figure that out. Of all the people in the company to work on culture, you're going to pick the one that's the least social and likes being around people the least. It's like, okay, that doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. But, you know, I want to be a good co-founder. He had lots of things to do, as, as, as we know. Um, and so I said, fine. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but fine. Uh, being an engineer, I treated as a engineering exercise. So like step one was, I'm like, okay, well, we have a culture now. Like we do things, we make decisions, the company's running. It looks like it's going pretty well. And so I treat it as a data exercise or analysis exercise, which is, okay, we already have a culture. Let's stipulate that it's working pretty well. Let's figure out what that culture is. And my job is really to write that down and manifest it somehow. And so I went and did surveys of all the employees to figure out, and I did it the same way I would do anything. I did a net promoter style survey. It's on a scale of zero to 10. How likely are you to recommend HubSpot as a place to work? And then the qualitative question is like, why did you give that score? And to share this kind of mini story within a story. So the first time I reached out to the team at HubSpot and said, hey, I'm going to be trying to figure out our culture because Brian and I had this meeting and we think it's important. So I forget how I said it, but it was kind of like that. And in the 15 years I've had at HubSpot, the most negative visceral reaction from the team I've ever gotten of anything I've ever said was that declaration that I was going to go work on culture. And it, it just kind of took me aback a little bit. It's like, I, like, okay, well, where is this coming from? Like, what is this? And, um, and so I talked to a few folks. And by the way, like most of these people I had hired. And then one of them, I asked him, it's like, why are people and you like feeling so negative about the fact that all I said was, we're going to look into our culture and figure out what it is. He's like, well, that's how these things start. We're going to look at culture. And then what's going to happen is we're going to have these posters on the wall with our mission statement and our value. And we're going to become one of, quote unquote, those companies. And another longtime person's like, okay, well, I don't know if HubSpot's the company that I thought I joined. It's like, dude, like how... Can that be? We haven't even done anything yet. I was super sensitive to this visceral reaction people have negatively around this idea of crafting culture or defining culture because they thought it was a should be a organic thing. It's not something you actually work on. It just sort of is. I, and they may have been right. I don't know. So I, I treated it a little bit gently. So I made it this data collection exercise. It was a simple set of questions, just trying to figure out the culture. And, um, and that first deck that kind of described it was called the culture code. And that name still exists today. And most people, when I talk about the HubSpot culture code, they think code is like a code of conduct or a code of values. And it's not that at all. It's code. I meant like literally code. And so the V1 of my project was if I could write a function to mathematically approximate the probability of the success of any given HubSpot person, what would the coefficients of that, what would, you know, what's the parameters of that function? What do you pass in without figuring out the relative weights and such? And so that's what I thought of as my exercise. I just want to identify the things that are correlated with uh, success at HubSpot. And so that first version identified that. And, and transparency is one of the things that came out of it. Humility is another one that came out of that early exercise that people tended to be humble and valued humility in others at HubSpot. Who knew? That was not something I had really thought of. And so subsequent to that exercise, that deck stood for a couple of years. And then people came the team then came back to me and it's like, okay, well, that is actually very useful, that first deck, because it helps us hire. It's a useful thing, but it could be more useful because all it really tells us is the who, like who fits at HubSpot, who's likely to do well. It doesn't tell us about how we should operate or how we should make decisions. And so they added, asked for kind of new features to this culture code, this operating system that we were trying to write. So I went back and so the original deck was 16 slides, uh, went back and expanded it 
to 64 and then ultimately 128 slides, which is what it stands at today and, and will not change. Because now every time I add a new slide, I take a, another slide out. So anyway, that's how I kind of fell into culture. So now it's kind of worked in a way, oddly, paradoxically well, because part of what makes me useful is that I look at culture in a somewhat of a scientist's way, like a scientist would like study a grasshopper kind of thing, right? Because I have no horse in the race. I have no team I'm trying to protect. I have no direct reports. I can have a somewhat more objective view on culture and how things are working, just given the unique nature of my role. And obviously I have lots of skin in the game and lots of incentive and motivation to try to make the right calls. It's worked out. But had that CEO meeting between Brian and his CEO friends not happened, I don't think I would be as deeply into culture as I am now, but it worked out. And this idea of culture as product, what are cultural products that you've shipped that failed? And maybe what are products that you shipped that had an impact beyond your expectations? If you think of the HubSpot culture as a product, what are the key features that people ask for, that they want? And autonomy is way up there. Transparency is way up there. But a one that has kind of shown up over time, especially recently, but even pre-pandemic, is around flexibility. as literally a core feature of the product. And we did okay on this front, but that drum kept beating. It kept showing up in the NPS surveys that we did. So we've been expanding that particular group of features around how do we make HubSpot more flexible along several dimensions. One is obviously around just remote work and the decision around being in the office or not in the office. One attribute of the early HubSpot culture was that we didn't have titles. We thought titles reflected hierarchy and we wanted to be a meritocracy-based thing and we thought titles were stupid. That was the original thing. And ultimately, we had to retract that just because the customers revolted and we introduced the notion of titles. And we had three options on the table. We said, okay, well, we can continue to do no titles. That was kind of option A, that was a default option. We could do titles that were classic titles, manager, director, VP, senior VP, or we could do titles, but everybody gets to make their own title up. So you can be a grand poobah of design or something like that. And ultimately we chose option two, which was classic titles because the customer feedback, employee feedback was, well, the reason we want titles is because there's life outside of HubSpot, rumor has it. And that if, as we go on with our careers, that's the thing that people are going to look at as proxies for a progression in our career. And that's what family's going to ask at when we get together for the holidays. Like, oh, like, you know, how's work going? Whatever. It's like, oh, I got promoted from a director to a VP or something like that. That means something to the outside world, even though it may not mean that much at HubSpot. So that was one of those that even though Brian and I felt strongly about it, this notion of meritocracy and that titles were kind of silly, we, I think, rightfully got convinced that that was suboptimal. And so we made that change. Now I'm going to share another early story with you from the early HubSpot days. So in our first office, we were in a co-working space and we had a room devoted to ourselves and it had four desks. And there were only two of us, my co-founder and I, because, you know, we had big aspirations to grow. So we had twice the capacity of the existing employee count. And uh, I just want you to visualize this room. So there's a room, it has a window, and there are two desks that are by the window and two desks that are not by the window. That's the only distinction criteria. There are in four corners of the room, not a very big room. Okay, so we hire our first employee. A senior engineer, he was out of Yale. So we had to make a decision uh, around just seating. Now, the first thing that came to us was we don't really care all that much about the desk. We just happened to be sitting by the desk by the window because why not? Just away from the door, away from some of the kind of hallway noise. But it's like, okay, well, it doesn't seem fair for us to have already occupied these two seats. And maybe Patrick, the new guy, wants to have one of these seats. And like, we don't care enough anyway. That's not what this is about. And so we did this weird thing. We said, okay, we're going to uh, 
do this like a mini lottery. So we put our names into a hat. We didn't have a hat, but, and then we picked out. And whoever's name got chosen first, and this was a, a key part of it, is they got to choose of all the four desks, which one they wanted. And it wasn't they, oh, whoever gets, you know, they get the window desk or who, what we believe to be the ideal optimal desk. It's like, no, you get the choice and you can pick whichever one is optimal for you. And so we did that. And so he actually picked up one of the non-window desks. And so we went back. And then the next hire, we did the lottery again. The next hire, we did the lottery again. We And so we kept doing that as we, even as we moved into larger and larger office space. And there was a couple of things that manifested as a result of this really simple hack. Any company can do it. One is hadn't really thought about it at the time, but it's like, oh, people got to know different people because you were never locked into one spot. So and if you got a super crappy desk, it was only going to be crappy until the next hire, which happened relatively quickly. And then we did it on a quarterly basis. But the big, big, big value out of this is it took so many cycles and calories that people would have possibly spent on thinking about their desk or their office space, which happens in bigger companies as well, that they just didn't have to spend because that was literally a non-issue. No one had to think about because they were, all the desks were identical and it was done on a lottery basis anyway, so it didn't really matter. And if one happened to knock at a great desk one time, you'll have another lottery in three months anyway. And that was awesome. And titles were a part of that. And so these investment in culture, our hope is that we can make the operating system such that the people in the company are spending minimal cycles on no-op instructions that don't accomplish anything, just to kind of close out that story. So we did it at, obviously, at two people, did it at four people. We kept doing it. And then we had like a real board in place because we had done some venture rounds. And we would talk about this kind of jokingly. And they're like, okay, that's cute. And that's all fine. But you realize that's just not going to scale. That can't work every three months changing everybody's seat around. So then we did it at 100, did it at 200. And we kept doing it. We do it to this day. And we made some tweaks to the algorithm, right? So it's not a complete random distribution anymore. What we try to do now is to say, hey, we want to try to keep the quiet people with the quiet people because an engineer sitting right next to a salesperson that's on the phone all day is suboptimal. So we still get the positive effects of the randomness and the fact that people don't have to spend calories thinking about which desk they got. We also get the positives of people get to be around other people and none of the negatives around the politics and the metagame calories. So it's, it's, it's worked out. We still do it. Hundreds of people will change desks every three months. Well, that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was a blast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.